welcome in to another episode of Ins Out. Moving on here in the AFI Top 100 list. We're coming down the final stretch. Not quite the end, but a second to last of Top the 20. series. 11 through 20. Some gr- truly great films in this um, category, or this section, I guess. Um, and then some that may not quite fit that standard. Okay, I'm interested. I'm okay. intrigued. Do you so have my attention, sir? So we're going to start off here uh, with number 20. It's a Wonderful Life from 1946, directed by Frank Capra, written by Francis Goodrich, Albert Hackett, and Frank Capra. Stars Jimmy Stewart, Donna Reed, Lionel Barrymore. Nominated for five Oscars. Um, best Picture that year, we've kind of, we've talked about it in the past, but real quick, Best Years of Our Lives won. Uh, Henry V, The Razor's Edge, It's a Wonderful Life, The Yearling, Inducted the National Film Registry in 1990. People say, oh, and real quick, just the Oscars it was nominated for. It was nominated for Best Picture, uh, Jimmy Stewart for Best Actor, Best Director, Sound, and Film Editing. Uh, it is thought of as a classic Christmas movie. I know TBS and TNT and all those well, it was channels syndicated. Like syndicated that, it, was, yeah. it was syndicated on, I think, I think we see, I believe it's CBS because it, if, if, if you played on TNT and TBS, yeah, it was the whole Turner. the whole Turner family. Yeah, yeah, so I'm pretty sure it was CBS that got syndicated. This is this really kind of ruined Frank Capra's career. Really? Because Ca- Capra was this is a huge flop. Mm. This movie is famously a huge flop. Um, the reason it's a classic is because it was syndicated and they just played it over and over. I think it's on like 24 hour loop. Or like Christmas Eve now or something like that. Yeah, you can find it. You can literally find it any any place you can find this show. And you can find this movie. Well, there's also the controversy, the color versus black and white. Yeah, the black and white's much better than the color. I've seen both. Okay. Um, I used to watch the color when I was a kid. And then I realized I started liking black and white movies more. So I watched the black and white more. Mm-hmm. It's just whatever you want. But the color colorized film this doesn't look as good <laughs> yeah it looks i know cheap <laughs> i read stories that like jimmy stewart and frank capper were like testifying in front of congress and stuff of like they basically were saying this is not our film and like they almost didn't even want to acknowledge well, it, it, that was, it was colorized it was colorized because the tv networks wanted to colorize yeah. cbs paid or whatever network paid to have it colorized yeah so yeah um, i guess my my take with this is i don't really like this movie okay I mean, like your 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 opinion's valid. I mean, yeah. like it's, I think, it's. It, I think it's just overrated at this point. Yeah. Because people are like, oh, it's so good. The fact that this is the highest rated Capra movie kind of is. Yeah, that's pretty. Because after watching Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, I think this movie is just so much better than that other one. Sure. I think it's a Wonderful Life. I think it could go way down on this list. I mm-hmm. think it's important. Sure. Because, like, it's a classic for a reason. It's a, I would say it's, like, top five Christmas movies. Mm. Die Hard's number one, of course. Of course. Die Hard's number one. Obviously. Um, but I think this film deserves some recognition for what sure. it did. But it's just so interesting that, like, Capra's career was kind of, like, tarnished because of this. He yeah. didn't make – he didn't have a big film. He didn't have a huge, huge film after this. He didn't get the budgets that he normally did. And – Fun fact, Lionel Barrymore is the grandfather of Drew Barrymore. Mm. And he's like one of the like biggest villains, I think, ever. Mm-hmm. So it it's a good movie. I think I didn't I didn't like it as much as other people do. Yeah. It's like a lot of Christmas movies, like the what is it, Christmas story? Uh huh. Christmas story. The movie's is so overrated. Oh, I, 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 I do not <laughs> like that movie. Um, yeah. I, oh, it's a wonderful life. I just watched it 
excuse me, I just watched it for the first time uh, recently before this, and I had heard a lot of hype about it. I know it's Seth Davis from The Athletic always live tweets it every single year when it's when it's on that 24-hour loop on Christmas Eve, and so it had gotten a lot of hype. I know I've talked about it on this pod before. I'm a huge Jimmy Stewart fan, so I wanted mm-hmm. to see it, and Regardless of like my feelings for the overall movie, Jimmy Stewart is still great, and it's an yeah, iconic it, performance. It, it's the most Jimmy Stewart of Jimmy Stewart performances. Yeah. Like he's hamming up, and he's definitely using his voice in a way that's really kind of it, it made it iconic for a yeah. reason. Because I didn't like I knew Jimmy Stewart only from this movie growing up. Okay, I didn't know that he was in other movies. I thought yeah. this was his only movie when I was growing up, yeah. and because I associate Jimmy Stewart with this movie. Mm-hmm. But um, it's just, it's overplayed. I think that's the main reasons. Top 20. Yeah. And I, I just think that um, it's kind of a wholesome story, I guess. Kind of an easy an easy watch for families. And it's not exactly dealing with anything super complex or really high concept. No. Um, it, it is kind of like a... Uh, Ghost of Christmas Past vibe. I mean, like it's, in the it's, third a, act. it's a Christmas Carol, basically. That's, Pretty much, that's, yeah. It's an uh, updated version of the Christmas Carol yeah. that was set in. I think the, Roger Ebert described it as a Christmas Carol in reverse. Yeah, because it's. He, I mean, the ending's almost the exact same. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's a good movie, but I think that it's top. I think it should be in the top 100, but I don't think it deserves to be top 20. Definitely not the top Capra film either. I think that's probably my biggest beef is yeah. that I don't think that this should be the best Capra film because also 46 was kind of getting toward the end of like his prime, I guess. I yeah. would say. Yeah, Capra. I mean, you don't. I think this is really the end of Capra as we think of him as the mm-hmm. auteur. Sure. Yeah, I mean, It's a Wonderful Life at 20. I would bump it down. I think Graham would also bump it down. Um, good film. I think maybe just a little overhyped. A film that is not overhyped by any stretch of the imagination is number 19, On the Waterfront, from 1954, directed by Elia Kazan, written by Bud Schulberg, stars Marlon Brando, Eva Marie Saint, in her film debut, by the way, um, Lee J. Cobb, Carl Malden, Rod Steiger, uh, this is kind of just a motley crew of people we've talked about before. Yeah, um, it's iconic for a reason. Yeah, it could have been a contender. Could have been a contender. We'll get to that. It was nominated for twelve Oscars and won eight. Uh, it won for best picture, Brando for best actor, Eva Marie Saint for best actress, best director, uh, screenplay, cinematography, art direction, film editing. Also nominated, Lee J. Cobb for supporting, Carl Malden for supporting, Rod Steiger for supporting, and. Best score by the legend Leonard Bernstein. Best picture that year, On the Waterfront One, Seven Brides for Seven Brothers, The Kane Mutiny, The Country Girl, Three Coins in the Fountain. I've never heard of any of those other movies. Uh, Kane Mutiny, I've heard of. That is Humphrey Bogart, and I believe um, Fred McMurray is in Mm -hmm. that as well. Um, And then Seven Brides for Seven Brothers, I know, is kind of a semi-popular musical, but anyway. Um, inducted in the inaugural class of the National Film Registry in 89. Uh, it was the first of two Oscars for Brando. Um, originally, just a fun tidbit I picked up watch, re-watching this on TCM last week, uh, it originally had Frank Sinatra cast as Terry Malloy. Um, Sam Spiegel realized that once he realized he could get Brando, he kicked um, Sinatra off of, it, off of the project, and Sinatra tried to sue and this basically started a feud between Brando and Sinatra that really came to a head when they co-starred in Guys and Dolls um, a few years later. 
And so, yeah, so there was kind of a, a bit of a controversy behind the scenes there with um, with Frank Sinatra and Marlon Brando, which I just think is kind of funny. Yeah, because Bre- Sinatra would have sucked in this role. Oh, it would have been atrocious. Because, like, I, I imagine Sinatra as a dumb palooka-type guy, mm-hmm. but I only I can only picture Brando really pulling it off in a way that you feel sympathy for. Yeah. Because Brando, Brando, I think, is underrated in the top actors of all time discussion. Mm-hmm. I think he's underrated because he's such an asshole. He's sure. such a jerk to work with. Yeah. Here he's incredible. Mm-hmm. I mean, Brandon was not, was a very bright man. He was very smart. He knew exactly how to attack a scene. One of the first method actors. And he was the first famous method actor. Mm-hmm. And you can tell between him and like the other actors who aren't method actors, you can tell that he's just elevating himself way above them. Sure. I think this is Brando's iconic role besides um, The Godfather. Sure. But I think this, I would say this is better than The Godfather. I, I would agree with that. As far as like his performance goes? Yeah. Yeah, I would say so. I mean, I think well. The Godfather's a better film, but I think this is... Playing a dumb boxer seems easy. Yeah. But making him the main character is hard. Sure. And that he took the fall multiple times. Yeah. And it's just, it's nuts. Um, I mean, I think it's Brando's best role. Mm-hmm. I think him and Streetcar Named Desire is incredible as well. Sure. I mean, I mean really, the, that the, Elliot... The, the films he's been in on this list, he's all been really good, except for Apocalypse Now. Sure. But everything else he's been, he's been insane. The Elliot Kazan connection with Brando really just kind of sparked this great partnership. And also, they really put some incredible art on screen and i think that kazan really knew how to get the best out of brando and i think a streetcar named desire and as stanley kowalski and here's terry malloy on the waterfront really were two of the roles that brando had the most to work with and i think he really kind of went for it more than maybe a vito corleone well i think you could tell that he had to dive deep into because like brando boxed Mm mm-hmm Brando learned how to box for this role, learned to do a bunch of stuff, and no actor at the time would do that. Like he, like there are scenes where he's like losing his memory, but he literally just he boxed the night before and got punched in the head a bunch of times, so he forgot some stuff. It's stuff like that that you hear stories about, like the scene in the car at the end, and this this is the classic, and the blinds behind. Well, they couldn't shoot on a real sound; they couldn't shoot in a car, so they had to make it look like. They had to make it look like it was real. They mm-hmm. had a real projection, and it looked really fake. And the dirt and the um, Kazan was like, "I can't do this. Mm-hmm. We can't shoot like this." So they put blinds in the. Well, back the, of the reasoning car. for that was because there was a. I think it was a PA or somebody had ridden in a cab earlier that day with Venetian blinds in the back. Yeah, and he, he came in and said, "Hey, they some some cars do this, and it works. I mean, mm-hmm. it, like, it's an iconic scene for a reason because sure. I like." I know that tidbit, but it's really funny. Like you look at it, and like that's it's a diversion if you only make it a diversion because sure. the acting in that scene is incredible. Sure, Rod Steiger really good in this movie. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, it's not this movie just seemed like it. La- it's gonna last for a long time. I think this is essential viewing. I'm not gonna bury the lead any further. This is one of my top five movies of all time. Seriously, I'm yeah. dead serious. This okay. is this film is one of those films that kind of just shook me to my core to kind of realize what film can be. Um, okay. This is... How old were you when you first watched um, this? So I first watched this when I was probably 
15 or 16. Okay. And that, then that's, I just, that's around the time where like you find the films that you love. Yeah, I think. yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I, I watched this film when I was in college, and mm-hmm. I really I didn't know Brando that well. And I looked into Streetcar and Desire, which I had watched for class, which is why I didn't think I liked it the first time I saw it. And I watched On the Waterfront by myself, and I really liked On the Waterfront. Um, well, just noticing how good Brando is, and also how big of a star he was. Like, he was a, an attractive guy. He sure. was, I mean, he was like, the first male sex appeal guy. Like, if you're talking about a sex symbol for men, Marlon Brando was that. Like, Marilyn Monroe and him were the two sex symbols of the mm-hmm. 50s. So you look at that and you go, wow, that's the 50s actor that we want to see. Yeah, I really also think it's cool that Brando kind of has to play two characters in this. He has to play this tough guy who's kind of serving as this mouthpiece for Johnny Friendly, played by Lee J. Cobb, masterfully, by the way. And then Eva Marie Saint, who um, her brother gets killed, kind of, because of Marlon Brando and Terry Malloy, um, basically brings it out to him that really, he's a very broken dude, both physically from the boxing I mean, and also know, just emotionally and mentally from this strain and kind of this tug of war. Well, you can see where, like, Rocky kind of comes from this. Mm-hmm. You can see where, like, other boxing movies after this kind of come from this, where it's like, this guy is doing bad stuff like Rocky has the mob. That's definitely directly from this movie. Absolutely. And that he was kind of just a muscle guy. And you can tell that... I could have been this. You could have built me as this. I could have been this. And, you know, it's kind of like um, the Cinderella Man movie uh-huh. where he's like he was this big contender guy and he lost his chance. Well, except he doesn't have the rise again. He doesn't ever get that again. Yeah. He takes falls for, for bets. He does. He did all these things. And that last scene is heartbreaking. Absolutely. And the thing is, it's heartbreaking not only realizing because they'd set this precedent throughout the film of Terry kept calling himself a bum. He's just beat down by everything and kind of just his society and just physically, mentally. He, but he also, was a warm-up fight. That's basically what he was for, for sure. his entire career. And he, had, and he had to throw a bunch of fights because his brother Charlie and Johnny Friendly would um, place bets against him. And, I mean, that last quote, I could have had class. I could have been a contender. I could have been somebody instead of a bum, which is what I am. Yeah, you just you your heart breaks. Especially much. with Rod Steiger, it's supposed to shoot his brother if he doesn't listen to him, mm-hmm. and he doesn't ultimately. But um, even after that, I think it was a great choice that that could have been that could have been the end of the movie where he kind of just rises up. But he still gets the crap beaten out of him afterwards too. Yeah, it's on like, the docks. I mean, it's a, I almost say this feels very seventies. Mm-hmm. This feels like like it's kind of like Rocky, where it's like he gets the crap beaten out of him. He doesn't win. Mm-hmm. He's not going to win. But, like, it's this type of sad ending. It seems like almost like a play, which I think this is based off, I think this is somewhat of a play. Um, so it's an original story by Bud Schulberg. Okay, I've seen, I've seen this as a I'm play sure, before. I'm sure it's been adapted. But, like, that's a, a very play ending yeah. of the 50s and 60s. And you, I think this movie you would have seen in the 70s. I think that it was a bold choice to do this in the 50s. Mm-hmm. And especially, I think, it works perfectly shot black and white. Yeah, I don't. I can't imagine this movie in color. Mm-hmm. If it was in color, I think everything would be too distracting from everything else. Because he wears a plaid jacket the entire time, and yeah. how they shot red back then would have looked really bad. Yeah, it would been really glaring. Sure. I think this like shooting it black and white, which you can. I like black and white in this time period because you can really update it. Like mm-hmm. you can do the the res- restorations and stuff. And it comes in clearer and clearer and sure. clearer. Yeah, because black and white film was so much ahead of Technicolor at the time. 
Yeah, and I also love another point that I'd like to bring up is that this is kind of a genre bender, if you will. It's, there's a mystery involved. There's kind of a crime thriller, thriller. It's a mob movie. There's romance. There's even a few comedic moments of levity in it. It's just a lot for kind of everybody, I think. And I yeah. again, I think On the Waterfront is one of those films that everyone needs to see. Yeah, if you consider yourself a movie buff, you need to see On the Waterfront. Mm -hmm. I think it's one of the most iconic performances brilliantly directed mm -hmm. shot beautifully it's like the last scene is iconic for a reason you just need to see it i think top i think top 20 i think you can almost say top 15 for this sure because i think i mean top 20 is like you've got to be the best you got to yeah. be you got like the reason that we're like people might be like oh you got to take out um sorry oh, it's a wonderful life is because it's like it's not as good as like Jaws, yeah, or something. It's like it's not a movie that's so influential, yeah. Because I mean, these top twenty again are truly the cream of the crop. And yeah. personally, I know I said it earlier, I'd put it on the waterfront like the top ten, but it may not be that high. Um, this film is just phenomenal. Um, it the script as well is so tight. Um, I love kind of the back and forth with Carl Malden's um, preacher kind of trying to rally the troops, but basically they have the D&D &D rule, the deaf and dumb, nobody wants to rat out Johnny Friendly because they know they're going to get basically killed. They're going to get whacked. Yeah, they're yeah. going to get whacked. And so it's just really fascinating. There's a lot of moving pieces, but it works so well together, and I would say I would highly recommend it if anybody um, has not seen it. Yeah, it's only available, I think it's available for like, two bucks to rent yeah like it's not that much to rent this yeah. movie it's a it's a great one um, a movie that i really want to get into sure let's do it all right number 18 the general from 1926 directed by buster keaton and okay it imdb says clyde buckman but amazon prime when i watched it last night was marion mack there's multiple directors on okay. this. It depends who they give credit to. Okay, gotcha. Um, written by Buster Keaton and Clyde Buckman. Stars Buster Keaton, Marion Mack, Glenn Cavender. Uh, it's pre-Oscars. Uh, inducted in the National Film Registry in 89. Uh, Buster Keaton said this is his personal favorite of his mm -hmm. movies that he made. Um, a lot of classic gags. Um, just, I, just like the best stuntman Real, Truly. Like, I mean, yes, he's messing with the cannon. He's just flying over stuff. Oh, he, I mean, like, he's really I mean, sacrificing his body. I mean, like, he's on the front of the train. There's, like, the logs. And he's, like, literally, like, if he doesn't pick that up, the train runs over it and it derails. Mm -hmm. Like, he's doing stuff. Like, Buster Keaton was in time before stunt teams were a thing. Mm -hmm. He was at a time where if you didn't do something the right way, you could die. Yeah. Like, he looked, there's a lot of Buster Keaton... I think super important to the history of film. Absolutely, and it's really a shame because by the by the '30s, because he didn't talk, he was he didn't do a lot of speaking roles. Mm -hmm. By the '30s, he was forgotten, and that's really a shame because he is really one of the pioneers for stunts and I mean slapstick comedy. Him, I mean him and Charlie Chaplin are top are the top two most important figures of this time period. Sure, um, the general is important. I think it's really important. You can see where a lot of stunts today are done without wires. I, I was going to say, I think this is like Tom Cruise doing all these stunts for Mission Impossible. But but no stunt team. But no stunt team, yeah. Like, there's a famous one where he jumps from a building. And there's a famous part where he doesn't make it. That's a joke. Mm -hmm. Well, he literally fell three stories. Like, yeah. he, he fell three stories onto a cart. And he was like, he was okay. He was luckily not hurt badly. Yeah. But, like, he, Buster Keaton is just one of the most legendary performers of all time. Um, 
I wouldn't put this top 20, though. Is it have to do with the Civil War aspect? It's not just Civil War aspect. Okay. I think I think that kind of, I mean, it hasn't aged. That hasn't aged well. Sure, fighting for the South. Yeah, not a good. But not like a great they look. don't they don't make a lot of racist things like sure. Birth of a Nation. No, yeah, it's more just like he's trying to fight for the home team type of thing. Yeah, and like the like that train drilling at the end. That's a real train that just yeah. blew up. Like, yeah. <laughs> like like all the stuff in here. You're just looking and go like, how influential this film is. I think it's not that. I think it's just like it's short. It's sure. I, I think it's forty minutes. It's not long. It's um. Like, so the cut I watched was an hour nineteen. Hour nineteen. Okay. Uh-huh. The original. I think the original one was like forty minutes or something. Yeah. Because like they used to do like a bunch of features, so it was sure. like him hey, and then a Chapel movie and then like something else. Yeah. So I wonder. It's really short. It's not. I mean, the stunts in it are insane. I think it's influential. I just like top twenty. Top 20 is high. I think that this is a film, watching it, kind of what you were alluding to, I was just wondering the whole time, how did they pull this off? It's just everything that he did on camera, he literally did. Yeah. There's no such thing as stunt double. Buster Keaton, like, broke arms, broke almost every bone in his body once. I mean, it's such a small part, but there was a scene where he's riding on that huge bike, and then all of a sudden just hits a wrong turn and just completely wipes out. And I'm like... What the heck just happened? And he, I mean, he's he's just falling off the train, falling off of random carts. I mean, he's he's falling out of windows. Like he's really just sacrificing himself for the art, and it plays out beautifully. I think this film is really good. It's really good. I just think top twenty all time. Sure. I mean, I think. I mean, there's how many Chaplin films on here? Uh, three. Uh, the three Chaplin films on here. Yeah. You need to have a key, you need to have Buster Keaton on this list. The general definitely belongs on the list. For it sure. definitely does. I think we could say top fifty. I sure. Because yeah. without Buster Keaton, we don't get the stunt work that we get today. Yeah. There's no clamor for a best stuntman Oscar. There's no John Wick. <laughs> there's no there's no Mission That's Impossible. That's the biggest travesty. Yeah. There's like there's <laughs> there's no Mission Impossible series without this. Yeah. Tom Cruise doesn't have a career resurgence without this movie. <laughs> That's so true. So true. Um, yeah, the general uh, just just really good and honestly. We've, we had a few silent films on this list, and I hope people don't shy away from that. Because this film is still very exciting. There's not a lot of title cards in this movie. Yeah. It's a lot of slapstick. and a lot. Like, it's pretty much, I kind of think of it as two runaway train sequences with a few different uh, plot points kind of to stitch it together. Yeah. Um, it definitely just, you have to watch this movie just to see like, what... I mean, it was kind of a standard for a while. I, I, I kind of see some Mad Max influence, too. Oh, yeah. I mean, but, like, you see everything. You, like, you see stunt work and action mm-hmm. out of this, which is kind of insane. Because mm-hmm. it's a slapstick comedy. That's all it really is. Yeah. But you see the stunts that he pulls, you're like, how? Yeah. How did you do that? And uh, Buster Keaton is one of the most iconic, I think, one of the most iconic people ever. Like, for sure. It's, it's, it's a shame that he's kind of lost to time. Yeah. But we need to really re- like research him and just revere him as sure. one of the mo- like it's him and Chaplin are the top two. Definitely, and we'll get to Chaplin later. Um, General eighteen probably move it a little down, but still top fifty. I think is yeah. a safe place. Uh, number seventeen, moving on here to the Graduate from nineteen sixty seven, directed by the great Mike Nichols, written by Calder Willingham, Buck Henry, based on the novel by Charles Webb. Stars Dustin Hoffman and Bancroft Catherine Ross, who we talked about with the Butch Cassidy part, pod. Um, nominated for seven Oscars, and it won one. 
Uh, best picture that year was In the Heat of the Night. One, Bonnie and Clyde, Dr. Doolittle. It's Guess one of the most iconic dinner. classes of all time. The Graduate. We've talked about it before. 1967. We, we were heaping the praise of Rod Steiger earlier, but he definitely stole this Best Actor Oscar yeah. from the likes of Paul Newman and Dustin Hoffman and so on and so forth. It won Mike Nichols a Best Director Oscar, which is great. He didn't win it. He, he didn't win it for... Um He's afraid of Virginia Woolf, correct? I don't believe so. Okay, so he was but, nominated though. Yeah, but this—I mean—I would say this is the better directed film. Sure, um, it it was nominated also for Best Picture, Best Actor for Dustin Hoffman, Best Actress for Anne Bancroft, Supporting Actress for Catherine Ross, Screenplay, and Best Cinematography. Inducted the National Film Registry in 1986. This film is an iconic film of the 60s. Yeah. Simon and Garfunkel soundtrack, Sound of Silence, obviously mm-hmm. very influential in I pop mean, culture. I mean, it's one of those sound. It's like one of the first soundtracks to ever like have the lyrics of the songs be important, impertinent on what's happening in the scene. Yes, is to you, Mrs. Robinson. Yeah, exactly like that. And Sound of Silence opens the film, and it's him sitting in a room, sad, depressed. He graduated college, he doesn't want to go to his own party. Yeah, that entire thing. I'm not the biggest fan of this movie. Okay. Um, I prefer Who's Your Favorite Virginia Woolf and Mike Nichols. Okay. But also, I think this film is amazing. Sure. It's a film that I think... Well, we're talking about Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf. I think Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, the script, I think is slightly better. No, it's 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 tighter because it's a play. Sure. I think it's I think it's a tighter script because it was a play, and I think... That's also, that's also more of a, I guess, dialogue-driven film, which is partly because of the play. Um, I mean, than, than this and the one. the performances are just stellar. Sure. Hoffman in this movie... You don't like Hoffman in this movie? He just seems like a sad sack from the beginning. You feel... I, I mean, I love his... Towards the end of the movie when he actually starts doing a lot of stuff. Yeah. I feel he, like... I'm like, okay, what? where was this in the first half of the movie? Sure. Because, like... Also, doing a film like this in the, in the time period was kind of radical. I mean, sure. having an affair with a married woman who's your friend, who's like your quote-unquote girlfriend's mom. Yeah. The weirdest tri- love triangle. Weirdest love triangle. And also that, that shot, that, the most iconic shot, I think, of the film is yeah, where... The wedding? Not the wedding, but okay. like where, where like the, his, um, Catherine Ross finds out. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Where it just, it's just, it's the mother and it goes to the... It goes to the daughter and it goes to him. It's like one of the mo- it's one of my favorite shots. Mm-hmm. There, the cinematography in this film is incredible. Yeah, I don't know how it didn't win the, the cinematography. Well, there's also the classic shot of through her leg and see Dustin Hoffman, and then of course when he crashes the wedding that has since been parodied in films like Wayne's I mean, World cra- Two. Crash the and then like this. I mean, even like that scene where like they're focused on people's faces and like how they're like how they're looking, and she's like he looks at him and. He's the only one who's like, I care for you. I give, I actually give a damn about you. Yeah. And then the ending is iconic. I think top 20s, I think this is exactly where this film belongs. Sure. I think we could talk all day about how important this film is, like we did for a lot of front. Yeah. But I think it's a film that you need to see. Absolutely. And it's just a fascinating story because it takes risks. Yeah. A film set in, a film in the 1960s going over affairs going over like going over the affairs going through someone who is trying to transition into the real world from college Mm -hmm. that that's a film that has kind of been done before but never done like this sure mike nichols crafts an amazing film out of this 
And just even that idea of self-worth as well. Because, mm-hmm. I mean, I think it's fair to say that Dustin Hoffman's character is depressed throughout this entire film. Well, you can tell that he just doesn't know what he wants to do. Mm-hmm. Like, his dad's like, you got to get up there and work. He's like, what am I supposed to do? Like, I have no, yeah. I have really no expertise. I have no credits. I'm here to, I'm here to be here. Yeah. I really do like this film. It's tough for me um, to compare to Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf because they're both so good. Well, this is, and I think this is one of the best color films of the sixties. Mm. Just like the color palette, are, like it really, like they're really new going in that they're going to shoot Technicolor, so they went with the color palette that sure. didn't have a lot of reds, didn't have a lot of those colors that don't look good in Technicolor. Um, Sorry, that's just my little cinematography. No, you're good. So spiel. Um, <laughs> but like knowing exactly that they were going to do that. I mean, I think this and uh, Butch Casting Sunday's Kid are two of my favorite shot films of the 60s. Mm. And Cool Hand Luke's another one for me. In 2001, which we'll get to in a second. Sure. But like those films to me are just shot masterfully in color during this time period. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, um, it's a great film. Plastics. Anyway. Plastics. Gotta get in plastics. Number 16, Sunset Boulevard from 1950, directed by Billy Wilder, written by Charles Brackett and Billy Wilder. Stars William Holden, Gloria Swanson, and Eric von Stroheim, a famous Austrian director, in case you did not know. Yep. It was... Do we, do we read them off? I have them set. Okay. It was nominated for 11 Oscars, won three. It won Best Screenplay, Story, and Writing, mm. Art Direction, Music, Nominated for Best Actor, Actress, Swanson. How she didn't win will haunt me forever. Yeah. Uh, supporting Actress, Supporting Actor, sorry, Von Stroheim. Supporting Actress, Director, Cinematography, Editing, and Picture. One of um, Billy Wilder's most iconic films, I would say. It's in his, <laughs> his definite best film. Yes. Um, best Picture that year, All About Eve won. Born Yesterday, Father of the Bride, King Solomon's Minds, and Sunset Boulevard. Inducted in the inaugural class of National Film Registry in 89. Graham, I'm ready for my close-up. Well, it's it's all right, Mr. DeMille. I'm ready for my close-up. The, the history of this film <laughs> makes me happy. Like, I'm a huge history nut. When he's when she says, Mr. DeMille, I'm ready for my close-up, that's really Cecil B. DeMille. Like, yes. Like, they have Buster Keaton's in this movie. Like, they had, like, a bunch of, pe- like, silent people in this movie. This is one of the greatest up inside Hollywood movies. Yeah, like if like the fact well the reason that this film kinda got written was because Billy Wilder was in the Brown Derby one time and there's this drunk man in the corner. And they keep you know, the guy just keeps getting fed whiskey, keeps getting fed, and that's D W and he goes, Who's that man in the corner? And I said, Wait, just and he goes, Oh, that's uh D. W. Griffith. And he died like really close after that. So it's just, and he kind of thought, well, we're losing all these people from our history. Mm-hmm. I mean, he tried to get Chaplin back for this. Chaplin couldn't come back. Damn, that would have been cool. Yeah, they tried to get Chaplin for this, and I think I think Chaplin was either in court or was banned. Mm. I think he might have been banned. Okay, for coming back. It's it's iconic for a reason. Yeah, like von Stroheim, one of the most important directors of like early Austrian and German film. Mm-hmm. I had no idea this was William Holden the first time I watched it. Yeah. And then I now looking back, I'm like, and we've talked about William Holden a few times on this yeah. pod. Uh, incredible career, by the way. Yeah. Um, he, he, is inc- he is great in this role. 
kind of as a down on his luck screenwriter that kind of stumbles upon Gloria Swanson. Which is like Billy Wilder when he was starting off was kind of like this. Mm -hmm. Billy Wilder was trying to get in the industry any way he could. So it's kind of you use your background and he was in, he used to work in silent Hollywood. So he had to try to break in to Hollywood. Gloria Swanson is a woman who's seen past her prime. She's only like 50 years old. Yeah. And she looks good for 50. Like she took care of herself. She, I think Gloria Swanson gives them one of the most iconic performances of all time. Sure. The fact that she doesn't win the Academy Award will haunt me to my grave. Like she yeah. is insane in this movie. Yeah, she she is really just heartbreaking, truly. Cause she it really just feeds into the it's not even a stereotype, it's really kind of just a fact, especially at this time, that for uh, actresses, once you hit a certain age, you're kind of lost in the shuffle. And it's great that we live in a time where that's not the case anymore. Mm-hmm. Like Meryl Streep and Julia Moore and, I mean, Viola Davis and all those people. Judy are ma- Dench. Judy Dench. They're all making their greatest films as they keep going on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and this is also one of the best Stumble Into Fortune movies because William Holden's on the run from the cops. Yeah. And he just so happens to stumble in this house and meets Gloria Swanson and mm-hmm. and then they go on from there. Um, I kind of drew a comparison last week um, between All About Eve and Sunset Boulevard, kind of these two aging actresses trying to make sense of how to age in Hollywood and really or even just acting in general and kind of how to move in the industry. Obviously, two very different roads, and I think this is a slightly better executed one. I think this is much better yeah, executed, but sure. also I'm not the biggest fan of All About sure. Eve. All About Eve All About Eve's good. Sunset Boulevard is like all-time classic level. Like you look at this movie and you go, oh, they have, but like, when, like that still blows my mind that they're like, hey, wait, Buster Keaton's right there. That's really glorious. Like, these are really the people from that time. It really showed that Billy Wilder really loved film mm-hmm. and really gave a crap. Like he. This just, is like his love letter to Hollywood, basically. This is his love letter to old Hollywood going like, here's your last minute in the sun. I'm going to let you have your little moment. And then, like, you know, because like Buster Keaton got a second career out of this. Sure. He appeared on television all the time. DeMille, I think, actually got a movie. I think, like, I think, like, I think a bunch of these people get, like, second wins. Gloria Swanson started acting again. Like, all these people that were in this film that were past their prime really came back. Like, Von Stroheim doesn't really direct again. He acts for the rest of his career. Mm-hmm. Uh, also, fun fact, Eric Von Stroheim was the character, what they based Blofeld on for James Bond. I think I've heard that, yeah. Yeah, like, he, he was involved. He knew, um, Ian Fleming, pretty mm, okay. well. So, gotcha. and when they were writing uh, Thunderball, he was kind of mentioned as the guy that inspired him. That's cool. Yeah, I think this film. I think you could argue, argue top ten. You could I, you could yeah. argue top fifteen. You could argue top twenty. I think I would put it in the top fifteen, top twenty, mm. top ten, in my opinion. Okay. Because it's just like it's a love letter to Hollywood. Sure. And I think it's. Like it's kind of like inside baseball. It's like it's really yeah. good, but like it once you like dive deep into all these like little things, it really makes it better. Yeah, it's like the the perfect film for like film nerds. Yeah, like if you love film and you love history and you love like this the story of Hollywood, this film is like great. Yeah, I think most of these in this portion of the list and even the top ten as well, we're kind of getting to the point where 
whether you love these films or hate these films, they're films you need to see. They're films you need to see. Like, you need to see A Tomorrow for Life, even though, like, we, we joked about it. Like, I watched it a crap time as a kid, but it's like, if you haven't seen it, it's an important film sure. for multiple reasons. I think it's one of Jimmy Stewart's best performances. Mm-hmm. I think it's one of Capra's best films, but, like, every film on here, like, is super important and tells you a story of Hollywood and of the history of film. Yeah, for sure. At Sunset Boulevard, I would probably go top 15 um, with it just because it is so important. And around this time, Billy Wilder was just knocking him out of the park, pretty much. I mean, this kind of, like, this is right before it became big, big, big. Like, he started making... I mean, I'm sorry, this is kind of the height of his power because he made Double Indemnity, and mm-hmm. yeah, I think this is just, it's perfect. Sure. Did um, you say All About Eve? Didn't Billy Wilder direct All About Eve? Uh, no. Okay. I'm, no, no, no. That was... Um, make a look it up. I was like, I was like, that, that sounds... That's uh, Joseph Mankiewicz. Okay, okay. I think I was thinking another film. Okay. Um, again, I've said it before. The Apartment will always, not always, but right now it'll probably still be my favorite Billy Wilder film. Sunset Boulevard is probably his best. He has two, all, like, he has three all-time classics. Sure. I think that says a lot about him. Yeah. Like, he is... He's definitely one of those guys that gets, his name gets thrown out there, but I don't know if we recognize him enough for what he yeah, did. Yeah, he's also just, he was so diverse. Mm-hmm. He did Sunset Boulevard and Double Indemnity, which are somewhat similar, and then he does The Apartment, which is a screwball kind of comedy. Yeah. One of the best rom-coms ever made. Yeah, like he does he does that kind of stuff. I think Billy Wilder is very underrated because he's sure. so diverse. Yeah, he knew how to do a hard-hitting drama but also had incredible comedic timing. And he is one of the best writer-directors we've ever had. Also, he's really good narr- like ha- narrowing down narration. Mm-hmm. Like, the opening shot of the scene is the main character's dead. <laughs> You're like, what? Like, yeah. That was mind-blowing at the time. Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, Billy Wilder, a legend, Sunset Boulevard, legendary. Uh, go see it if you haven't. Moving on here to our top 15 now. Uh, number 15, 2001 A Space Odyssey from 1968. Directed by Stanley Kubrick. Written by Stanley Kubrick and Arthur C. Clarke. Stars Keir Dulia, Gary Lockwood, William Sylvester. Nominated for four Oscars and won one. And this is Kubrick's only Oscar. Which is a shame. It's wild. Okay, he won. His only Oscar was for special effects. Mm-hmm. He was not there nominated for... Best Director of Screenplay and Art Direction. Mm-hmm. His only Academy Award is going to be for special effects. And he didn't even show up to the ceremony. <laughs> yep. Well, that's, that's Kubrick. Yeah. That's Kubrick for you. Yeah, no, for sure. Um, best Picture that year, Oliver won. <laughs> Funny, Girl, <laughs> Funny Girl, Romeo and Juliet, the cringy version they show in high school. Rachel, Ra- Rachel, which I keep wanting to call Rochelle Rochelle because of Seinfeld. Uh-huh. Um, the Lion in Winter. Inducted in National Film Registry in 1991, it has the classic montage with the ape throwing the bone in the air. It's shown in film classes all across. Oh, the yeah. Open the pod bay doors, Hal. I'm sorry, Hi. Dave. I cannot do that. <laughs> really, just as far as visual effects and... I wouldn't call this a space opera, but a space kind of... I call it an opera. You it's think a, it's so? Just, it's a spectacle. I a think spectacle, it, I think yeah. this is just like... A lot of sci-fi films would not have been made without this film. And one in particular that is a shame that it was made at all. That would be Interstellar. Really? Oh, yeah, I forgot. You don't like Interstellar. I hate Interstellar, but that's I'm saving that for another pod. Yeah, no, 2001 A Space Odyssey, probably this and Star Wars, which we'll get to later, are probably the two most influential sci-fi movies, I would say. 
Yeah, um, for Ben Planet as well. I think okay. those. I think those are yeah, like yeah, the yeah. three most important sure. of like. Yeah. I don't think we. I mean, there's a lot of fifty sci-fi we could talk about, but like more of the modern sci-fi for the modern era, I would say. Yeah. Two thousand one Space Odyssey, you can see in almost every film. Sure. Like, uh, First Man even has this kind of feel of it, like, which is last year's should have been nominated for Best Picture last year. Like, yeah. We'll get into that later. Yeah. But like, <laughs> it's iconic. I was at a time in, in college. Okay. I didn't know where, what you were about to say. But... Where, well, you give me a look. I was like, I'm like, I'll look, hold on. Um, I was at a time in college where I had met some people who love Kubrick, mm-hmm. and I started hating Kubrick because of it. Oh, really? Because they were they wanted to be directors like Kubrick. Ah, okay. They wanted to be like in control and all that stuff, and it really drove me away from Stanley Kubrick. Okay. And the way that got me really back into it was seeing this. Okay. I, had a class which you had you could watch films for it was American it was the history of cinema in America. Okay. And it was taught here by Jonathan Hagel at KU. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of my favorite classes ever taken. And I saw and I had to sit down and watch it. I have never seen a movie like it and I don't think I've seen a movie since mm. like this. Like it was it made me just think, holy crap, they made this movie work. Yeah. Like, that this movie shouldn't work. They open up on the dawn of time they a bone gets thrown in the air and then it just shows like a spaceship. <laughs> like, yeah. It shouldn't work. Yeah. But it does. There's no real main character. Hal, I think I think Hal is the character that you most identify with because mm-hmm. you understand what he's kind of it's kind of weird because you identify with the AI. Yeah. And you identify with a couple like the Lee Dave. You get mm-hmm. you, you like Dave a lot. But like there's no real main main character in this movie. It's kind of just snippets of what's going on it literally is like a day in the life of these astronauts and this is what happens sure and i think that's why i don't like it as much as other kubrick films really because i listen i understand um visually how important it is um i appreciate actually how visually stunning it is and how in the spectacle of it you, it's almost indescribable how incredible it looks yeah. and just the shots that they pull off and even just shooting s- space or anything to look yeah, like how, space. Like you, 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 you think, like, how they shoot this movie Yeah. in 68, Yeah. how did they do that? Like, it blows my mind. The effects still hold up. That's sure, like, absolutely. Like, like, that film is over 50 years old and the effects still hold up. They just did a um, uh, re-release recently in the 70 millimeter or something I saw like it that. in IMAX. Yeah. yeah, I saw it. Yeah. <laughs> I, really I, would be, I would be intrigued to watch that. Like, it's a film that, like, visually is so important. Sure. Um, story-wise, the ending, the ending is just so up to interpretation. I've read the novelization of this. Okay. And the it doesn't make any more sense. Yeah. I... Yeah, I think I would move this down only because I think this story is lacking enough where it kind of took away from my enjoyment of it a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, I Again, I can't deny the importance of this film. Uh, it, it irks me a little bit that this is the highest Kubrick film. Yeah, it's really a shame. <laughs> that, that kind of irks me. Um, so I would move it down for that as well. I think, I think you could say that I would put... I would, if The Shining... Which I think is kind of in limbo. I don't know if it's English or it's his. If it's American, The Shining should be his best. Yeah, because it is his best. It is his best. I honestly <laughs> think it is his best film. But I would say, I mean, of the ones that are on this list, I think this is his best. Yeah, I would say... Um, Dr. Strange Love to Me is for my, my favorite. For my personal enjoyment, I would put 
Doctor Strange of, and honestly, I I really like Spartacus. I like Spartacus as well, but Spartacus. Like, it's not as important as this film, though. Paths to Glory. Paths to Glory. I have not seen that one yet. Oh, it's so good. Yeah. But we have to have a movie night sometime yeah. and watch that. That's a really good one. Uh-huh. Um, I mean, in Clockwork Orange, I it it really is tough for me to say I really enjoy that film, but it is a fascinating watch to me. Yeah, I probably need to watch it again, but I'm just I'm still skeptical. It's, yeah, it's tough. Um, that would be a tough film to rewatch. I've only seen it once, but yeah, it really sticks with you. Okay. But anyway, 2001 A Space Odyssey, hugely important film. It, it's like the film that's two spaces above it, which we'll get to, wouldn't have been made without it. So Absolutely. Let's just dive into 14 yeah, 14, uh, Psycho from 1960, directed by Alfred Hitchcock, written by Joseph Stefano, based on the novel by Robert Block. Stars Janet Lee, Anthony Perkins, Vera Miles. Nominated for four Oscars. It did not win any, but anyway, it was nominated for Janet Lee for Best Supporting Actress, Director, Cinematography, Art Direction. Um, how, how did Anthony Perkins not get nominated for Best Actor? It's a shame. It really is. It really <laughs> is a shame. He is. Well, this is your first time watching it. I actually want to hear your yeah. reaction first. So, uh, I was. I sat down to watch this finally because this is one of those films. I, I kind of have joked with some of my friends about there's like a list out there. I, it's not like a concrete list. I haven't made it. But there's a list out there of films that are so iconic or so popular. Um, Anchorman's on that list. Psycho. A bunch of others that I can't think of off the top of my head. And I finally needed. I finally had to get around to watching it. And so I finally sat down to watch Psycho. And at first, it opens on that shot of the bedroom in, in Phoenix. And all of a sudden, they're like, it, it was just kind of fascinating to me to kind of show at this time, as kind of weird as it sounds, kind of just show Janet Lee in like lingerie. Yeah. Well, this is also Hitchcock going like, yeah. Hey, people do this. Yeah. But like, it was just fascinating for me to see that, which I know it's such a minute part of it, but it was just that it was like, okay, this one can be different, basically. And so. You kind of go through Janet Lee, and then all of a sudden she's robbing her employer. She's on the run. She ends up in the Bates yeah, Motel. Like, you start to just be a straight-up horror movie. Yeah. I think that's the best part of this because I, when I watched it the first time, I didn't know that happened. Yeah. All I know is that this person's driving. Gets, it, ha- it has to pull over at the Bates Motel. Oh, I didn't, all I knew was the shower scene, basically. <laughs> I'm so happy. Yeah. So, like, I'm, like, so, <laughs> I'm so happy you experienced this because like, everybody talks about the shower scene yeah. and the ending. That's like yeah. all they talk about. They don't talk about the in-between. Yeah. No, the in-between was fascinating to me. And I had seen a couple episodes of Bates Motel, <laughs> which is the TV show, the short-lived TV show with Vera Farmiga and uh, Freddie Highmore. But, yeah, this this film was really just well executed. It really is. It's well made. Yeah. It's really well done. And it's still kind of frightening. I yeah, would say and it still works. There, I mean, there's a lot of blood. Um, obviously, that kind of syrup. Well, it it still looks good. It still looks good. Uh, still looks good. Um, just kind of they killed Janet Lee off very quickly. I did not expect that. Yeah, like the shower scene came comes in like the first forty five minutes. Yeah, it, like it's like main character killed. Yeah, <laughs> like I love the what, the crazy thing is she's listed as a supporting actress and her face is on the poster. She is like as far as I knew. Yeah, imagine being in nineteen sixty and she dies. Yeah, like Janet Lee, if you don't know, is the mother of Jamie Lee Curtis, mm-hmm. who's another scream queen. Like, yeah, she I think she's one of the OG scream scream queens. Like yeah, 
Like, it's iconic because you're just like, oh, that's a left turn. Okay, so who's the ki- – you think the mother's killing everybody. Yeah. You're like, that's weird. And then the curveball at the end where it's the son. Yeah. That was that was awesome because I uh, I did not know that either. I didn't know the ending. I didn't really know anything. I'm so happy. Like and, I'm, I'm so happy that you know didn't know the ending going in. Yeah. No. This was this was one of the true films. Like everybody says, I'd love to go into a film blind. This was probably as close as I've done to going into a classic film. From blind. an iconic film. Yeah. yeah. And um, I loved how kind of in the middle I was like. How are they? What are they gonna do? Where are they gonna go from this? Is the film over? Is this only an hour long? Yeah. And then they kind of go on this like wild goose chase, basically, of trying to find out um, any information they can. Uh, Norman kind of just starts killing them off one by one, and kind of dressed up as his mother, and it's just it's just fascinating. Yeah, that that scene where he's talking to his mother, and now like you realize that it's him. Talking as his mother to him. Definitely see a lot of Gollum influences. So Gollum, a lot of, I mean, he was a serial killer before we knew what serial killers were. Mm-hmm. That's as, as simple as it was. Yeah. And he was based off Ed Gein, who now is known as one of the most famous serial killers of all time. Mm-hmm. Inducted in National Film Registry in 92. Best picture that year was uh, The Apartment, One, Elmer Gantry, Sons and Lovers, The Alamo, Sundowners. Uh, I put a few notes here. It made people scared of showers. Um, it was the first American so film. So most kids, what are you talking about? Yeah, well, yeah, uh, first American film to show a toilet flushing. <laughs> yeah, the Hays Code. Yeah. Um, I thought that's just hilarious. Walt Disney refused to let Hitchcock shoot at Disneyland in the early 60s because he made that disgusting movie, Psycho. <laughs> Come on, Walt. <laughs> Walt, what I mean, a guy. I, just, I think Psycho is one of, is like, we talk about there's not a lot of horror. Mm-hmm. If this was the highest rated horror film, I'm not too mad. Like, yeah. like I would, I would say The Exorcist because of how important it is. But this film, it was like they didn't give him a huge budget. He wanted to shoot this film, and no company wanted him to make it. Mm-hmm. Like this film, like the the book was seen as pulp. It was seen as that pulp book. Yeah. It was seen as this kind of like risque thing to talk about because mm-hmm. Ed Gein was literally just happened. Yeah, and this book came out literally right after it was. It was one of the first books that was shown in Playboy. Like they played, mm-hmm. it was in every monthly issue of Playboy. This is what the the book was throughout. Okay. So it was seen as this kind of thing, and of course, I'm mean, Hitchcock's like, I want to make it, I want to make this movie. And yeah. Every the company is like, you're insane. No one's gonna want to see this movie. And if you and no one knew it was a book until after the film came out and the book became hugely successful. Sure. Um, Hitchcock, I think it's not as high as it's not the highest rated Hitchcock. Mm. But I would rate it. I think it's my favorite Hitchcock film. I think my favorite is still North by Northwest. North by Northwest. I think this the well, Hitchcock's just so good. Yeah. So, he's got so many to choose. I mean, you could throw Rear Window, Vertigo. I know you mentioned Rope a few times. Rope's amazing. Like he, he just has too many good films. Hitchcock's just <laughs> the standard man. Yeah. Um. He also. I also love his little gimmick where he shows up in all of his movies yeah and i like that he's not trying to be showy about it it's kind of like he's yeah. like the first real easter egg like hey did you see him literally he pops up in psycho when she's walking into work and you see him through the window and that was it yeah it just was like a silhouette you're like oh yeah like, i like that he was kind of easter egg in his own movies yeah. and he and, and m night Shyamalan and quentin tarantino and all of them tried to copycat anyway psycho from 1960 uh, i think 14 is a good spot yeah, yeah. I think if we're talking top fifteen, thousand yeah, percent, definitely. Here, uh, moving on here to 
one of the most influential films when it comes to pop culture ever made. I, uh, no, the, the most important. Yes, okay. I the, just, yeah. We're talking about the penultimate of yes. pop culture. The I original a, 1977. I had a friend yesterday try to compare this film to Iron Man as far as like starting off like this new like comic book age. And I'm like, I think that maybe comic book movies, absolutely Iron Man really kind of started this new renaissance. But Star Wars film in general and pop culture. Yeah. We're talking about the original Star Wars, 1977. Yes. Like we're going to call it Star Wars. We're not calling it A New Hope. We're yes. calling it Star Wars. Because that's how it should be called. Yes. Anyway, Star Wars from 1977, directed and written by George Lucas, stars Mark Hamill, Carrie Fisher, Harrison Ford, Sir Alec Guinness, and James Earl Jones, of course, as the voice of Darth Vader. Nominated for 11 Oscars, um, won six. Best Art Direction, Costume Design, Sound, Film Editing, Visual Effects, and John Williams for Best Score. Ben Burt won a Special Achievement Award for Sound Effects. And it was also nominated for Best Picture, Sir Alec Guinness for Supporting Role as Obi-Wan Kenobi. Best Director and Screenplay for Lucas as well. Best Picture that year, we've, not, we've mentioned it before. Annie Hall won The Goodbye Girl, Julia, The Turning Point, and Star Wars. Inducted in the National Film Registry in 89. I don't even know where to begin with the influence I, I of this I film. Don't, I don't have any notes. Like I, like I wrote notes for everything else besides this one. I think everybody knows how important Star Wars is. I mean, is. that there's a that the the ninth film in the saga is coming out, and people are like, and it's forty two years later. There was a gap from eighty three to was Phantom Menace ninety seven or ninety nine eighty three to ninety nine where there were no films. And it was still at the forefront of the cultural zeitgeist. Like it, it literally just changed film. Like, like Jaws was huge. Jaws was the first blockbuster. This, like, when you talk about reel-to-reel shooting, like there used to be theaters only had three screens, and they literally had it on a projector. They had it on a special made projector that the film would go around all three projectors. So the show times would start like maybe five minutes apart because that's how long the film reel would get to the other theater. Mm-hmm. Like that's how big this film was, and that it wore down. Like the like they had it. They have like four. Like there's a theater in Kansas City which has original prints, but they're they're really worn down. Yeah, because so many people wanted to see it. <laughs> yeah, like it was a spectacle before we knew how big it was going to be. Yeah, nerd culture wasn't a big thing before this movie. Like yeah. this really kind of made being nerd culture kind of more mainstream. Absolutely. We don't get films in the 80s about nerd culture, like The Goonies or a lot of the John Hughes movies without this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Star Wars, I mean, we've talked about a couple films earlier in this episode about how did they pull it off. I mean, how did they pull this off? <laughs> look, look, people on set thought this was going to be a huge disaster. So Guinness hated working with, on this film. I mean, if you... you I think there have been videos of, like, uh, Guinness and other people, like, fighting with the lightsabers, and it just looks so ridiculous, but then when you see it on in the film, it's so it looks so good, too. Yeah, like, there's, like, everybody on the set thought this thing was, because he had done American Graffiti, which got him the money to do this movie. Mm-hmm. And THX 1138. Yeah, 1138, which had Robert Duvall in mm-hmm. there. This film launches him to being... Lucasfilm is huge. It's still there. Like Lucasfilm and, get, and Industrial Light and Magic, which ILM, works on almost every film yeah, nowadays. I, I forgot. ILM was created because of Star Wars. Yes. Industrial Light and Magic was created for this because 
their, the special effects for this didn't exist. They shot on blue screen, which was unheard of. Like, there was a lot of footage and video of them, how they used to, how they made all these effects. And it still holds up. The original effects hold up. Yes. The special editions have ruined it. But like, special, addiction, uh, special edition just makes me sad. <laughs> like, I think this film deserves to be on the list. I also think Empire Strikes Back deserves to be on this list. I mean, one of the best uh, one of the best twists in cinematic history. And one of the best sci-fi films I think ever made. Yeah. I honestly will put Empire Strikes um, Back up there. Yeah, personally, my uh, my favorite is Return of the Jedi, but... You're entitled to your opinion. Like, everybody <laughs> has their favorite. Like, I'm not saying it's a bad choice. No, no, no. I just think it's funny because everybody's like, oh, Empire's so great. Or maybe maybe even Star Wars, but like, Return of the Jedi, Yub Nub. Ewoks, like it's just, I mean, it's, it, just it, what, it's whatever. Like I used yeah. to love Jedi, and then I yeah. really like dove deep into Empire. Sure. Like really, like I loved Empire yeah. also because it was the darkest of also, the movies. Shout out to Lawrence Kasdan. Yeah, Lawrence Kasdan. People, is, so he didn't quite. He wasn't quite in it yet, but by Empire, he was co-write. He was writing the script. Well, and he, stuff. he. But he also has made a lot of uh, really interesting films, even outside of Star Wars. People. Raiders of the Lost Ark. Raiders of the Lost Ark. Well, even just him directing as well. Yeah. I mean, The Big Chill is a big, a big one. Accidental Tourist. He, he made a lot of films in the eighties that are really um, yeah. interesting. I mean, Lawrence Kasdan did Touch Up, which means that they he goes over the script and yeah. touches some stuff up. And he still helps with um, the re- the new films too. Which yeah, he did cool. help with Ryan Johnson's film. That I think that's why people were pissed. But <laughs> I mean, the fact that we're getting a the ninth, the final film of the Skywalker saga, yeah, this year is kind of nuts. Yeah, how important this, these films are, and it's such a shame that um, Carrie Fisher passed away. Which yes. we have to talk about Carrie Fisher is one of the most important female figures in film. Sure, like she helped write um, when Harry met Sally. Mm-hmm. She's one of the best touch up. Uh, screen, uh, one of his ghost writers in Hollywood. Ghost, yeah, she like she always touched up people's scripts. Mm-hmm. She just she's just one of the most influential people in history. Incredible comedic mind and incredible mind for just as basic as it sounds, just people interacting. Yeah, and just like building relationships. You imagine Harry Metzai, but even in this film, in these films too, just they ad libbed a bunch. They ad libbed a bunch. The chemistry between her and Mark Hamill and Harrison Ford is just incredible i love the the like the things behind this are like carrie fisher and harris ford famously had an affair yeah during during the these three films mm-hmm. like famously had a huge affair yeah um but like hamill and carrie and harrison would just be go finish shooting they go out and get drunk show up hung over the next day like I, it it warms my heart that like they they loved each other on and off screen yeah like that that's just so cool. Also Pat, shout out to Peter Mayhew. Yeah. Who played, Chew- who played Chewbacca mm-hmm. who recently passed away. Mm-hmm. And Anthony Daniels the C three PO. Yeah. Um just man, there there's just so much. I mean, it really just says something that there is a literal convention for these films now. Star Wars celebration. Yeah. Like just that that's just insane. Well, it touched so many people's hearts. Like yeah. like this film, like it showed that, you know, you may be alone, but you have a purpose kind mm-hmm. of thing. Like like, that scene where he's looking off in the distance, like, you have a purpose. Like, mm-hmm. that kind of thing. That's, I mean, he stole a lot from Greek mythology and everything else. And, and also, Rogers Seven and, Samurai was a huge influence as well. Yeah. Yeah. He, I mean, <laughs> I, I mean Kur- Kurosawa. I mean, we, we can definitely have a pot on Kurosawa. Yeah. But, like, um, you can just tell how important this film is to the history of, of the industry. And sure. That there's films now made with 250 million dollar budgets. That is insane. Yeah. That like 
nerd culture has gotten to a point where we had Avengers Endgame, which is the highest grossing film of all time. Yeah. And that we've had, like, that there's a convention every year where they announce these films and people get excited and create, like, spec scripts on that. On yeah. these pro- projected projects way down the line. Yeah. And that we get freaked out when the character gets kicked off of their favorite a favorite roster. Yeah, it's honestly it's a blessing and a curse because of the toxic fandom that is around it's, it's now. A, but also it made it made being a nerd acceptable. Yeah. I think that's important. I think it for made, sure. Like George Lucas made being a weird nerd cool. Yeah, for sure. And I also see a lot of influence on James Cameron. James Cameron, I mean even Spielberg learned a lot from this. Sure. I mean, well, and Spielberg and Lucas are famously best friends and they work together a lot. This film just changed the game and I mean, it still holds up. I mean, J.J. Abrams, who's directing the newest one, I mean, he was a huge Star Wars fan. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think everybody, as kind of weird as this out, I think everybody to an extent is a Star Wars fan. Or most people are. I think most people are. Just like, if you like film, I think you have to acknowledge Star Wars is good. Star yeah. Wars, the first Star Wars movie is important. Sure. Yeah, it's and it like we've mentioned also the fact that this is from 1977 and the effects hold up and the story holds up and you buy into the characters and just how incredible of an achievement this was to pull off at all is just cannot be understated. Yeah, the fact that it's referenced so much still is like it's it's the we could have a whole podcast on how many times this has been parodied. But <laughs> you mean Family Guy? Shout out Spaceballs! Spaceballs! I love Spaceballs. Okay, let's anyway, let's continue because we could talk about moving on here to one film I have been waiting to discuss since we started this podcast. Number twelve, The Searchers from nineteen fifty six, directed by John Ford, written by Frank S. Nugent, based on the novel by Alan LeMay, stars. John Wayne, Jeffrey Hunter, Vera Miles, not nominated for any Oscars. Shocker. Won <laughs> it won the Golden Globe for Most Promising Newcomer for Patrick Wayne, inducted in the National Film Registry in 89. Best picture that year was Around the World in 80 Days, Friendly Persuasion, Giant, The King and I, and The Ten Commandments. All those other films besides Around the World in 80 Days are classics. I know that you are such a huge fan of Marian Morrison. And, <laughs> okay, before Graham gets into his rant, I actually like this film. I wrote a paper on it freshman year, and I really think that John Ford did a lot of cool um, cinematography tricks with lighting, and I think the character of Ethan just kind of being this broken-down war vet is really fascinating. But anyway, Graham, tell us why you hate this. I had to watch this for a class, mm-hmm. which doesn't help. Yeah. I will acknowledge the cinematography is incredible. Bear Miles is, is really good. Outside of it, John Wayne's a horrible human being <laughs> in this film and in real life. He's a racist, bigamist piece of crap. So on and off screen. Okay, so I will say this. I am not defending anything that he said. I will say I think when we look back at John Wayne, I think we need to take into account what era he was in. Sure. He it just this film to me, you like John Wayne is a horrible actor. I will like. There's no defending John Wayne as a good actor. He's not known as a good actor. He's known as a figure that he's could a ride a presence. He's known as a guy who could ride a horse and shoot a gun at the same time. It's really what he was. That's the reason that he got so many jobs. Yeah. There's one performance I will defend him in, and it is Stagecoach. Not even True Grit. I I like I like True Grit because they act the they wrote for him. Yeah. 
Because I was like, you know, you really can't act. We're just going to make you a drunk person. <laughs> Rooster Cogburn is John Wayne. Yeah, John Wayne. Yeah. Like, I just, I, it's influential. It's super influential to like, but the thing was, this was seen as a bad movie mm. up until Spielberg, Lucas, De Palma, and Scorsese all said, it re- the cinematography and everything really got me into wanting to make movies. Yeah. It wasn't until that this movie was this movie was not seen as a classic mm. until that. Yeah. Well, I mean, once you get those four cosines. Once you get the, those four cosines, but at the same time, I've never liked John Wayne. Mm-hmm. John Ford, I think, is a great director. I think he's a, a wonderful director. Yeah. I really do. I think he he the Western genre was was made literally by him. Yeah. Like it really, I think, I think this film is important. Top 15, I don't think it deserves to be top 15. This film was not on the original 1997 list. Mm-hmm. This film was only brought up for the 2007 list. Yeah. It, it's so high. <laughs> it is really high. I agree with you on that point. I don't think top... I think number 12 is way too high. It's like... it. I, I will say, it deserves to be on the list because sure. the cinematography is incredible. It is, yeah. Like... And also that they kind of dive deep. The story's interesting. The story is really... I have heard this film called Boring. I do not think it's boring. It's not boring. I just think it's it's a slow burn. I yeah. think that's the best way to say it. Because it takes place over five years, if I remember right. They're searching like, for like they, I mean, it's called The Searcher for a reason. Yeah. Like they, these people are looking for Vera Miles. Mm-hmm. And it takes them a long time. Because yeah. this tribe moves around. Like the Search for this Indian tribe and it moves around a lot. The act, a lot of the acting is very hammy. Besides, sure. like outside John Wayne, a lot of it's very hammy. Like um, Jeffrey Hunter was bad in this movie. <laughs> like, um, like I think Vera Miles is the only one I think actually gave a damn. I okay. This I know you'll disagree with this. I think John Wayne gives a good performance in this movie. And but the thing is, he doesn't show. Since John Wayne's John Wayne, you sure. can't tell what emotion he's feeling. I mean that's fair. I guess it might. I think it might also be a testament to the screenplay because I think it was really cool what they did um, about this guy who was really jaded by what he saw in war and how he came back and he is a racist. He is a, kind of a jerk, honestly. He's a dick. He, he I'm re- really, he truly is. But also, that isn't. That is just part of his character, and they're not necessarily glorifying. Well, he's damaged. That. I think. Yeah. That, I think that's like another thing. Like as much as I say, I don't like this movie. As much as I think, like, you could say it would be off the list, and I'd be like, cool. If it was on the list, I'd be like, if it's, like, top, if it's like in the bottom 50, I'd be like, sure. It, it deserves a place somewhere. Mm-hmm. It may be in a dumpster. But, <laughs> I, but I think, like, it's important that there are people who are like this. Yeah. They're, I think Unforgiven does a really good job of telling this kind of story as well, where this mm-hmm. person who used to be like this and used to act like this, and I think... I think like him being damaged and him having seen what he's gone through and understanding that he's a racist because he saw this happen. He saw all this stuff happen yeah. and he has been shot. He's done all these things. It just sucks that they couldn't get a better actor. Yeah. I, I think if this was handled by like any other actor at this time, any other like dominating male performance at the time. Clint Eastwood. Clint Eastwood. Oh, Clint Eastwood would have been incredible in this. But like... But Clint Eastwood would have been nominated for some Oscars, <laughs> probably. But Clint Eastwood, at the, imagine Clint Eastwood—he'd be insane. Yeah, it'd be really good. Yeah, I was thinking since it's John Wayne, 
like I when he was like being a jerk and he was joking around, I couldn't tell that he was joking around. I'm like, okay. I was like, are you are you kidding? Or are you being serious? I would kind of like to see this one be remade. If it was remade, I'd be happy. I think I would I would really like to see a remake of this. I'd like to see Roger Deakins shoot something. <laughs> that would be cool. Yeah, R- Roger Deakins. Like, I don't know how much longer we're gonna have Roger Deakins. So yeah, we need to get we need, we need get to get on him that. on every every movie possible. <laughs> yeah, um, I think this movie is remade. I think maybe like maybe even Christopher Nolan, like the Evil News, someone who could handle the subtleties a little bit better, have a better lead actor. Sure. I think that would make this movie much better for me. Yeah. I think it's just John Wayne is John Wayne and doesn't have any range. Yeah. But he also is... He's iconic. He's an iconic movie star, and I think for that, he deserves some credit. He's not... Outside of True Grit, obviously, he's not an Academy Award winning level. What are you talking about? He did Genghis Khan. Okay, moving on. Um... <laughs> uh, <laughs> <laughs> Number 11, City Lights from 1931, our last film with this uh, group, directed, written, and stars Charlie Chaplin, and also stars Virginia Cheryl and Florence Lee, inducted the National Film Registry in 91. Many regard this as Chaplin's best. Yeah. Um, I, I think you would agree with that. Oh, yeah. This, I, film's, this film's really good. <laughs> yeah, no, I, uh, I just watched it for the first time recently. Really, I think this is probably... The best um, tramp. Yeah, like, probably the gags are solid. There's not yeah. like like the boxing, the boxing, the boxing scene is one of my favorites. I I thought the boxing was gonna come up sooner, but it doesn't come till like the last like like the third act basically. Yeah, and also like I like that's on the poster like, and in the beginning he's sleeping on a bench. Dude, low key, I thought this was a boxing movie, but then yeah. it doesn't show up until the third act, and so I was like, okay. Yeah, like the the film is insane. I think it's. I mean, the gags are iconic. Mm-hmm. The use of sound is really good, which is because he struggled how to use sound in a movie. Well, this was also like the sound films were definitely a thing by this point. And Cha- Charlie Chaplin was a guy who didn't really want to, I guess, fully dive into that yet. Not yet, because he was still deep in with the tramp. Mm-hmm. And there was also, he does, u- like you mentioned, he does utilize sound, the gunshot, when he swallows the whistle. The door slam. The door slam. I mean, there are, there are definitely elements of it. Um, Charlie Chaplin is so good at expressing himself. Yeah, like, the thing is, this opens up and it's hilarious. Mm-hmm. Like, he opens up, he's sleeping on That's a statue. That's I'm not, I don't think I'm exaggerating here. That is one of the greatest openings I've ever seen. It's hilarious. Like, yeah. <laughs> I, I, like, I was like, I to, like, I remember being in college, I'm like, I have to watch a sound film. I watched it, and the first scene, he's sleeping on the statue they're unveiling, and I just started laughing. Well, that's a gag that's been done a bunch of times Yeah, but, like, he, but you watch it, and you're like, oh, okay, so I was thinking, and then he just like opens up, he's sleeping on it, and you're like, what? <laughs> well, just like like the the dude that's not supposed to be there, they're like get down, get down, and he, he goes to another statue, waves at him, get down, get down, another statue waves at him. like it just Charlie Cha- Chaplin was also so good at knowing how long he could hold a gag. There's also there's a there's the scene later. I mean there there are so many different times where he's saving the guy from committing suicide, where they keep falling in the water, yeah. or he's eating he's eating the noodles and then it turns into the confetti and the guy has to go or the cigar. I mean there's just so many different ones. The yeah. boxing by the way, the way they shot the boxing scene is great too. Yeah, whites. This nothing but whites yeah. really. Yeah, and just and also I love um 
I mean, there's another part where he gets the rope tied around his neck and the, the bell keeps going off. They have to keep going back and forth. <laughs> I mean, there are just so many so many scenes that are just really enjoyable to watch. Yeah, City Lights is like one of my, it's like, I think if we're talking about top 10 films, City Lights is maybe 10, but only, okay. be- only because it's a silent film. Mm. But my God, is it funny. Like, yeah, it, it is. It holds up. That's a, I think a film that's over 80 years old, if it holds up, I think that's important. Sure. And... In a way, I think this can be seen as a pretty straightforward and simple film. This guy falls in love. He, he falls in love with the blind woman. He um, he kind of forms this odd friendship with this rich aristocrat who only is actually friends with him when he's drunk. Because outside of that, he's like, who is this man? Get him out of my house. Um, but at the end, it also kind of explores these ideas of love and companionship and just purpose and loneliness and some really heavy topics. I mean, it's the height of the depression. So, like, he's dealing with stuff that was real. Like, like people are depressed, people only. People, like, he's a tramp at the height of the depression. Yeah. Like, he's sleeping on a statue. He find and he was trying to find any place he could sleep. Mm-hmm. Um, he meets the girl of his dreams. He's blind. Yeah. And Who eventually is cured. He's cured and still loves him for who he is. And the end, the ending is one of the like gut. It's not really gut punch, but it's also like definitely one of the more, more memorable endings. I would say of just she finally gets to see him and finally recognizes him. And that final shot of him just kind of smiling with the flower in his mouth, and that's it. Yeah, that's just that's just a crazy and really like, like ballsy she, way to end she, it. She doesn't like fall in love with him, mm-hmm. but she's just like, thank you. Yeah. It's a thank you. That's mm-hmm. all it is. Like, it's like acknowledging you as being a good person. Yeah. Which is what people really needed at this sure. time. Because, I mean, they've been screwed over by the banks. And the, the billionaire guy is only happy when he's drunk. Mm-hmm. Is, hilar- is hilarious. And that entire, like, boxing for money, it was what people were going through. And Chaplin masterfully made fun of all that. Without being without being mean about it, mm-hmm. and also just how he he is so good in this film about setting things up and paying it off too. Yeah, he he sets up he sets up all these different gags. The boxing scene in particular, they kind of they kind of build up this tension, and the payoffs are always the payoffs really deliver in this film throughout, which is really kind of what kept me into it. Um, Eleven, I'm not mad about. I think that's probably a good I, think spot it's pr- for I think it's perfect spot. Yeah, for I think Charlie Chaplin. I think if this is the only Chaplin that's on the list when we're all done, I'm happy with that. I would like the Gold Rush to be. Yeah, like Gold Rush. Okay, I like, like, like but I mean, like too. if there was only one he could pick, I mm. think this is the one. Probably, I, yeah. I think this is just like masterly executed. He just was at the top of is the height of whatever he wanted to do. Yeah, I think it's pretty well done. Yeah, eleven through twenty, our second to last edition of the AFI Top One Hundred list. A lot of I, I think I could recommend all ten of these films. I could recommend nine, but <laughs> um, I mean, the Searchers to me just doesn't hold up. Yeah, I mean, I also, I also, City Lights made me think of a film we'll talk about next week, um, Raging Bull. Oh yeah, uh, how they shot the boxing scene, and also just how that is black and white. Um, and we'll get into more of that later. Yeah. I just, I just well, that film. I, I need to rewatch Raging Bull. I need to watch, rewatch it, it's, it too. It's been a, it's been a minute. It, it's kind of it was a hard watch the first time I watched it. Yeah, but it's also kind of supposed to be that as well. Yep. But anyway, 
I mean, I digress. I mean, of the films here, I mean, The Searchers. I think we can agree doesn't deserve top fifty. I I could see around low forties. Like I wouldn't be mad about that. I just but like the films that are at that point. I think yeah. th- this is like of the John Ford movies. The other John Ford mm. movie, I think, is above it. Yeah. I mean, Stagecoach is another one that's not even on this list. Stagecoach is insane. It's really yeah. good. Like, yeah. like of, of the John, like this was John Wayne before he became John Wayne, and yeah. he actually was trying to act. Yeah. So well, uh, I mean, Stagecoach was like his basically his ticket into Hollywood. Essentially. Yeah. So like, I think I would say, I would say that it, I think it deserves to be on the list for how influential it was for other directors, mm-hmm. but I don't think it deserves to be top fifty. That's sure. just me. Sure. I mean, you could you could say it belongs in anywhere from fifty to ninety to hundred. I'll be like, cool. Yeah. Um, well, anyway, that is eleven through twenty for this edition of Ins and Outs. Thank you for listening. For my co-host Graham Cannon, I am Brady Shaw. We'll see you next week. Peace.